0: Welcome to the In the Fields podcast, a new podcast from St. Martin's In the Fields Episcopal Church in Columbia, South Carolina. In the Fields is a podcast where you'll find us out and about wondering about questions of faith together with friends and folks we admire and talking about where we're finding God out there in the fields. I'm one of your hosts, Mother Caitlin Darnell, Associate Rector here at St. Martin's. This week, we're taking a short break from our Y Church series to celebrate St. Martin of Tours, whose feast day we celebrate this Thursday, November 11th. We here at St. Martin's are obviously excited to celebrate because he's our patron after whom we're named. But I also think that St. Martin has something to teach all of us. Today I'm here with the Very Reverend Andrew McGowan, the Dean of my seminary, uh, Berkeley Divinity School at at Yale. Dee McGowan graciously uh, accepted the invitation to be on the pod, even though I was a a less than stellar student and and hopefully he won't share any embarrassing stories about me. Uh, dean McGowan, thank you so much for being on today. How would you like to introduce
1: yourself? Uh, hi caitlin and you you're, you're doing yourself an injustice i'm sure but it's good to be here with you and with your um community as well yeah so um my name is andrew mcgowan and if people are wondering why i sound like this it's i'm an australian uh, i'm a priest of the anglican church of australia and uh, i am dean of the berkeley divinity school at yale and i'm also a scholar of early christianity including its ritual life but among other things uh people like Martin of Tour, whom we might get to speak about in a little while. So, yes, I, I study the, uh, the early church and teach about that, as well as about things to do with with Anglicanism to our students who are in formation here at Berkeley at Yale.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I asked Dean McGowan to be on this podcast in particular about St. Martin um, because several years ago now, when I was a senior at the seminary, we took our annual pilgrimage to Canterbury, and while we were there, Dean McGowan gave all of us um, Saints medallions of of Saint Martin to pin to our coats, um, which none of you here have seen because in this climate, I don't wear a coat. But Dean McGowan gave a very compelling talk about about Saint Martin and and why we were getting those medallions as a sign of our our budding ministry in these times. And I wanted to invite him here to, Talk to all of us a little bit about it because I think, you know, even with 70 years of history here at St. Martin's, we have a lot to learn from our patron. Um, And I think Dean McGowan might have a little bit to teach us about about that.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, You know, the the excuse or the occasion for sharing those little St. Martin medals was the fact that we were visiting what's actually the, the oldest church in continuous use in the Anglican communion, which is, a very unprepossessing little building on the outskirts of Canterbury. It's such a contrast with the magnificent cathedral. But St. Martin's Church um, may date back even to the 4th or 5th century. It certainly dates back to the 6th century, which is an extraordinary length of time. And um, now that in itself was interesting, but the reason that perhaps it, it connects with Martin a bit more directly is that he was such an extremely popular saint during this period, and it's not an accident that the oldest church in England, the oldest church in con- continuous use, is named after Martin. And um, not many people perhaps think of St. Martin of Tours as uh, a household word, but it's interesting when you think about it that um, Martin Luther, who is more of a household word, was named after Martin of Tours. And, uh, Martin I don't Luther think King. I knew
0: that yeah, or remember right. that. And
1: Ma- Martin Luther King, of course, was named after Martin Luther, so you can actually follow a little... A trail, a, a breadcrumb trail, a, a bit indirectly back to the enormous significance of Martin. I mean, the name Martin is popular in Europe uh, solely, you know, because of Martin's influence as this extraordinary figure, and. He's just a so bit if less any of online. our young
0: mothers are listening, I fully expect to baptize a Martin or two in the next <laughs> yes, few please. years. Yes, please, make
1: sure. At least they could slip it in as a second and third name if they don't like it as the first, right? Um, right. But why not? Yeah, but but why was this interesting in the 6th century or whenever it was in England that that building went up? And um, and then, of course, as, as Caitlin indicated, why did I want to impress Martin's example upon the students at the time? Well, Martin... Uh, lived in the fourth century. His, his life spanned most of the 300s, in other words. And this is an unusual and interesting time from the point of view of Christian history because it's really during this time that the church shifts from being um, an edgy movement that is somewhat ill at ease with Roman imperial authority to becoming the imperial state religion. And all this happens during Martin's lifetime. He was born just after the last Of the great persecutions of christianity under the emperor diocletian but he still grew grew up is into his teenage years in a world where christianity was held at arm's length was not uh, accepted or uh, endorsed religiously but when martin was a teenager the emperor constantine came to power and constantine believed that he was called to uh, give christianity freedom and indeed to endorse it and to give it authority and substance in the roman empire so, by the time Martin died, Christianity had shifted years into being the religion of the Roman Empire, and the the shift that this involved was massive. I mean, if you were a Christian living in times of, of persecution, then of course um, it sounds terrific, and in many ways it was. Uh, it was the end of people being martyred and persecuted for the sake of their Christian faith, and we shouldn't um, pass lightly by how huge a thing that was for. Christianity to be able to exist freely and for us to, at least at least for Christians, to be able to take for granted some of the things that people would take for granted today about the exercise of their freedom of religion. But, and to be
0: a young adult in that shift
1: too. Right. Um, a, a, lot, a lot of things are happening. Um, but Martin is someone who represents the ambiguity of that shift. Um, he, I think, like most other Christian leaders of the period, are you know, glad to have the freedoms that are attached. But he, I think, more than some other people, was aware of the, the continuing tension between the ideals of Christian faith and those of, uh, of of public or civil authority. And what happens when the two things become too closely connected? And that's perhaps his lesson for us. Um, Martin was a soldier, a career soldier, and um, – he, he served in the Roman army, uh, apparently was an officer in the army, perhaps even a cavalry officer according to some of the stories. And um, he became a Christian catechumen, meaning that he was um, someone who was uh, training sort of with, with baptism in mind as part of the end of a process. This is also an interesting contrast with our situation that people were prepared to line up and become catechumens or candidates for baptism and wait years for it, um, partly because the church thought that they really had to take years in some cases to prove that they were ready for it. Um, and also because I think people also had higher standards uh, for themselves about what they thought would be, you know, be necessary in order for them to be baptized and thus to um, to, to claim Christian faith. The, the, the famous story about Martin's sort of um, crossing of a line between his, um, his being a soldier and a catechumen and his becoming a baptised Christian is often associated with a, a story about Martin. Um, this is famously depicted in art. It's an extremely popular um, topic in, in medieval art and in icons and so forth where Martin uh, is supposed to have met a beggar outside um the the gates of a city and
0: uh Ariens, I think
1: or Sorry, I French, again. So
0: I'm probably Ariens French. I think I don't speak French so it's probably the wrong French Oh, H-B.
1: Amiens that's right. No yeah, exactly. Um and um according according to this story um the, the, the beggar is clad in rags and um he um is he, he asks Martin for, for help. Um and Martin, uh, according to the story, takes off the, the rather grand military cloak of a cavalry officer and he cut it in half so that um, the beggar had half, which was enough to clothe him and keep him warm, and Martin kept the other half. And then the the, the epilogue to this was that um, Martin then dreamt that night that he saw Christ clothed in the half cloak that he'd given to the beggar and Christ says to the angels, look, Martin, who is only a catechumen, has clothed me with his robe. And, um, you know, this is a story that, that makes us think of the, the, the Matthew 25, you know, where, where Jesus speaks of the king coming in judgment and judging between the sheep and the goats on the basis of, you know, when you did this for the least of my brothers or sisters, you did it for me. And, Anyway, this, this story has been you know, passed on and, and may have the stuff of legend attached to it, but, um, but Martin then was baptised and, and became not only a Christian but became a monk quite rapidly. The, the thing that I don't want to pass over too quickly about the story, which must be historical, I think, is not just the part about the beggar but about the fact that Martin did not think that he could actually receive baptism until he was ready to give up the vocation of being a soldier. And that yeah. may sound um, awkward to some of us today. Um, and I um, I think we, we you know, I, I don't mean to offer any disrespect to those who have served in armed forces or anything like that, but I think that Martin was coming from a time when it was assumed that it was not compatible with Christian faith to serve in the military or to engage in other professions which involved killing people. Um, and when you sort of stand back and think, well, in fact, from a Christian point of view, that probably makes sense, doesn't it? That killing people as, uh, as a profession, even if it's in what may seem to be a good cause, is, is not actually something that's compatible with the gospel. And certainly this was the assumption up to Martin's time. Uh, but of course, this, this is therefore a, a bit of a counter story to Constantine's story, which is happening at the very same time, where Constantine as one Roman general fighting for domination over others believes that he sees uh, the cross in the sky and that he's being told that he will be given victory by fighting for Christ. Interestingly enough, though, that even though Constantine often becomes for us the symbol of the collaboration or the compromise of Christianity with power, Constantine also remained a catechumen almost for the whole of his life um, because he, similarly to Martin, and presumably both of them were getting advice from people like priests and bishops, Constantine also didn't think that it was compatible with his exercise of the office of emperor to be a baptised Christian. In other huh. words, he also knew that he was going to have to do things like kill people since that's, you know, assumed to be part of, the, be part of the, the, the the role of civil authority in, in the Roman Empire and uh, at least had the good sense to understand that killing people and Christianity were not compatible. So Constantine himself was actually only baptised on his deathbed when, you know, his the frailty of age basically putting past the, the point of being able to be a risk to other people. Um, so, the, so the first lesson that Martin sort of makes us sort of confront, I think, is the radical character of Christian faith and the ways in which it might call us to adopt different sort of principles and standards and forms of action from those which the society around us assumes, and that in particular the ways in which Christianity has made a rather too easy peace with forms of institutional violence is is one of the things that's a legacy from this change across the fourth century, which Martin is a kind of potent counterexample.
0: Yeah. Well, it, I find that aspect of his history so interesting. So, Dean McGowan, Columbia, South Carolina, houses Fort Jackson, which is the largest army training center in the United States. Uh-huh. Um, it basically makes up half of the population of Columbia, our um, folks who are either – you know, officers working and teaching at Jackson, um, or recruits coming in for basic. It's also where all of the army chaplains are trained, um, and where they're, they're headquartered. And so when St. Martin's was being founded in 1950, 1951, um, a lot of the founders had just come back from world war II. And then a lot of them were seeing their, their children or their kind of younger siblings being drafted or, or offering up themselves for the Korean war. so in and around the time of St. Martin's founding, when you read through the history, everything is, you know, this founding meeting happened in October. And that was one month and three days after the war in Korea started. Wow. It was very much on the minds of of everyone. And you can hear in those founding documents and in those founding notes the the wrestling that people were having with being veterans of these wars and, and coming back and being faithful people.
1: Yeah, yeah. These, these are interesting stories. And I, um, I have a T-shirt um, with St. Martin on it, which I got from the Episcopal Veterans Group, for instance. And uh, yeah. he, he, is, he is much admired by um, many veterans. Um, although I, I think it's also part of the understanding that, that I have, you know, from the point of view of him being a patron of veterans, that, you know, a few people who've actually gone to war think that war is a great thing. And mm-hmm. so for him to be a patron of a group of those who have fought is sort of an acknowledgement not of necessarily of, of glorifying or lionising either war or military service so much as to acknowledge its ambiguity. Um, and, again, I, I think that um, this has been part of the way Martin's been received in history, that on the one hand he's been venerated often by people in the military because he was a soldier who was a saint. But he's also acknowledged, of course, as someone who, um, who who had to give up his arms in order to um, to fulfil his own calling. And, and his biographer. And who better
0: to intimately understand the the trauma of war or the the moral injury of war than a yes. saint who himself has been
1: in it? Yes, I, th- I think that's right. I think I think veterans will often understand that more profoundly um, than others. Um, and they may, of course, still be patriotic, and they may still want to. Um, be able to 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 defend their, their their military service as well, and and I want to pick no fights with those folks so much as to say that that Martin would Martin is an uneasy patron, you know, for this this kind of exercise. He um, he there's there's a line attributed to him that you know I he after his experience with the beggar when he's decided that he really has to seek baptism he goes back and says you know I cannot fight I, I must serve Christ um, he, he he understands the two things to be to be quite different. But it, I, I think I should also say that less less this seems to turn into an issue about veterans and military service, that Martin decided that his own call had to be that of a monk and a hermit. So it wasn't just that he was saying that he couldn't be a soldier, he was actually saying that the radical character of Christian discipleship called him into a deeply countercultural expression of, mm-hmm. of what Christian faith might be. And um, here's another part of his career is that he 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 um, goes off as a hermit. He lives in a, a cave by himself for years. And, of course, he acquires a great reputation for holiness and popularity. People go out to him because they want his prayers, you know, for their for their children or for their sickness or for whatever it is that their needs are. Um, and, you know, the impression we have is this basically drives Martin bats but he can't cull them away because he's, he's too popular and too holy. And um, the next time that the – the, there's there's a vacancy for the bishop uh the bishop's job in tours which is the, the French city where he's outside which he's living mm-hmm. the next time there's a, a, a vacancy for the bishop's job that people say oh we've got a bright idea martin's a very holy man we should make him the bishop and so they go out, and he tries to hide from and there's, there's even a, a story which I'm sure is legendary—a story about him hiding in a farm that was full of geese, and the geese give him away, you know, because they cackle when people are, are hunting Martin.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: Um, Martin is given away, and they and they sort of take him unwillingly, and they make him bishop. This is quite a, a common thread. This is one in- of my
0: favorite, like, ancient church, late ancient motifs: is the uh, kidnapping of the bishop. Essentially, the it happens of the so many of them.
1: Uh, it's 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 also a potent if i mean we we can't help be, but be a little tongue in cheek about this one but isn't it interesting that we've created a culture in which we think people have to actually seek the office of bishop with such enthusiasm and basically run campaigns which look a little bit like you know theologized versions of political campaigns in order to persuade people to elect them there's you know yeah, i'm sure I mean, we
0: just had an election here so it is very much right many of us just sat through that convention where we had to sit very still and behave for a while. time <laughs>
1: <laughs> well just I, and, and again no disrespect to those who seek the office of bishop because it's a burdensome thing and if someone genuinely is called then we they uh, they deserve our prayers and our admiration and i'm also sure by the way that there were people in the ancient church that sought the office of bishop in a rather you know politicized and works. underhand sort of fashion so we can idealize these things. However, I, I do wish for some sort of acknowledgement in our public culture around bishops' elections that the episcopate is actually something that that anyone with a genuine call to the episcopate should first think of avoiding before they think of claiming it. Um, and, you know, how, how we actually work that back into the system, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But um, it's, it's, there's one thing that remains true. If someone really, really wants to be a bishop, that's a bad sign. Um, if someone really really feels called to be a bishop of course then that's a, a different question and god bless them um but it's this god is another sort of countercultural element for martin his his bishop um, thing the, the third story about martin that i think is is it's a little bit more complicated but uh, it's it's really powerful for me is that um once he become bishop you know martin becomes this respected teacher and you know people come to see him and seek his advice and like other bishops he took part in deliberations that went beyond his own diocese when issues came up. Mm-hmm. And this was a period when um, a bishop in Spain, uh, uh, the bishop, in fact, of Avila, which people may have heard of, it's the same place that about a 1,000 years later, you know, Teresa uh, comes from. But this bishop's name was Priscillian, and Priscillian of Avila was someone who um, w- w- had some, had, let's just say, had some weird um, theological ideas and he was condemned for heresy. Um, and, uh, you know, Martin is with this up to this point that, uh, yes, Brazilian shouldn't really be a Bishop because his ideas are not those of, you know, Orthodox Christian faith. He, do, he shouldn't be a teacher in the church. Um, but it goes wrong at this next point that the other bishops think, and now we have this wonderful relationship with the civil authority. That means that we can exercise the same sort of punitive power that the civil authority does when it comes to punishing people who have committed offenses in the church. So you know what they do? They condemn Priscillian to death. And Priscillian becomes the first person who is executed under a civil authority that has become hand in glove with the ecclesiastical desire to keep order. And Um, that's, that's a, that's a tragic story for the church's confusion of its own culture with that of the wider society. And, um, Martin's part in this is, is striking and distinguished that, um, when he heard that this was what was going to happen, Martin not only objected in the most vociferous terms to Priscillian's execution, but he excommunicated all the other bishops who had taken part in the trial, uh, and all those who were responsible for Priscillian's death, because he, he stuck to the principle that had you know, underlain his position about his own military service, that the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of peace and that there is no room for killing as part of uh, the, the, the structure or, or the culture of, of Christian life. And it doesn't matter what people have done. I mean, it matters what they did, but it, what they've done can never constitute a basis for taking a human life. So he's an early, um, an early witness to some of the concerns that we are perhaps more familiar with in the 20th century with, you know, people like Sister Helen Prejean, if someone, some mm-hmm. people know her name, the, the, the heroine of the Dead Man walking book and movie and so on, um, and others for whom, the, you know, the witness to Christ as himself, of course, someone who was executed, someone who was murdered judicially that the example of Christ should be one that should cause Christians always to oppose the exercise of the death penalty. But more than this, I think for Martin, its use with regard to Brazilian represented a profound confusion in the relationship of how power should work in the church relative to how power works in the civil state. And the willingness that his contemporary bishops had, the willingness they had to make use of the toys that the state was offering them, oh, look, you know, we can actually inflict punishments on people too now because people now regard us as, you know, significant social figures who should be able to wield power in in the way that other other significant people do, magistrates and so forth. And, and Martin was completely opposed to this. He, he was clear that the character of Christian power and of the order of the Christian community has to maintain a, dis, a distinctive kind of, Slavery or colour—it can't be what what power is in this in the civil sphere. And even if we take capital punishment out, even then, I think Martin would urge us to be very thoughtful about how we want to align ourselves with the agendas of the the political parties and agendas of our own time. Um, and this this my interest in Martin was. Um, driven for me in some ways by the events around the 2016 election, which, you know, I know is a touchy subject to talk about with with good folk. But, um, uh, of course, many people were disturbed by the outcome of the 2016 election, and there may be others listening who were not. But um, my disturbance, although I honestly was disturbed by its result, I'll just admit that freely, but I was also disturbed by how quickly Many Christians were uh, thinking that the whole of their understanding about how Christian faith should shape our witness in public life had become aligned with the witness of one political party. Mm-hmm. Even though in that in that case it was the Democratic Party. For those among whom I hang out in a in a blue state in a university context, as you can imagine, um, there there would be counterexamples examples or, or really just good parallels, of course, for people who have rather deeply and scarily identified the politics of the Republican Party and of former President Trump with those of Christian faith. So this isn't a problem that belongs to one side of politics or the other. And while I do not think that the the policies and the actions and the processes to which Christian discipleship calls us are politically neutral, I don't believe that at all, I do think that we're at a point in history where we have to start thinking about how distinctive a Christian witness in the political sphere might be, as opposed to it simply being a sort of religious version of the agenda of one party's politics. And yeah, you know, it strikes me that, that, that in the it,
0: life of Martin, there are all of these instances where he very much cuts against the grain of what
1: very very he might much so. him to and, do, and, and not just because not just because people were doing making bad decisions in the civil sphere. Even though that's clear, that you know, the case of Brazilian, that that's one instance. But I think that more deeply than Ma- that, Martin believes that even in order for Christians to make a contribution to civil society, they have to do so by understanding how distinct is the Christian witness from that of the political authority itself in the political realm. Um, I, it seems to me, you know, that that he was living across this fourth century in which a transformation was taking place about how the church related to the empire and And in some ways he was a holdout for the older view of the church as the minority report, you know, still witnessing Mm -hmm. courageously as a group of martyrs if necessary, even though he he lived through the period into which that became unnecessary. But it seems to me that the 20th and the 21st centuries are a little bit like the same thing in reverse, that we're rolling out of a situation in which people could assume that Christian faith was somehow a, a, a comfortable bedfellow for the exercise of political power that, you know, the all the, the trappings of the use of religion to to reinforce elements of um, the national authority, you know, the, these are things that even now I think in 2021 when we're speaking, they look more awkward than they did 20 years ago or 50 years ago, you know, when people use religious institutions or religious language to kind of cast a, 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 a sort of, shadow or whatever the right way of putting this would be to, to add something to their political agendas.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it
1: seems to me we're getting to the point. We are right
0: we're, in the thick of the Bible belt. So that's uh, right. Right. Well, you know, you know, South Carolina. Uh, yeah. It's,
1: I'm, sh- I'm sure that there are many folks for whom this still seems to be entirely natural, but I think that what we're facing now is a process of secularism, which is not going to go away. That. Um,
0: it has perhaps been accelerated by the pandemic. I
1: think it has. Um, and I think church is very conscious of that aren't, aren't we? Because. You know, there are some people who, having broken the habit of being connected with faith communities, haven't sort of reformed the habit. And so mm-hmm. it's it's as if the decline of the churches, which was on rolling slowly, has sort of been sped up a bit in the course of this this time. But I think I think this has actually been clear for a long time. We look at the Industrial Revolution, we look at the disillusionment of Europe after the First World War, we look at the rise of the ideological Um, you know, forces of fascism and of communism. Um, The the decline of Christianity as the sort of the easy way of talking about the public religion of Western society has has been a long time in the making. And the United States has been a bit of a holdout for this process relative to Europe. Many of your listeners will know that Europe is a much more secular place in terms of these issues like church attendance and the influence of the church in, in the public sphere. We're facing a world in which uh, we cannot really afford to kid ourselves to, to the extent of saying that that the role of the church in public society will be to be some kind of conscience to which everyone's going to listen because they're not. We're going to be um, we're going to be a minority again, like we were when Martin was born, before Constantine was converted. And you know, the church then it didn't have a very good time in some respects, um, but. I guess you knew who you were, and I think that the question of Christian discipleship and its benefits and its risks were were more readily discerned. Um, this this won't be a comfortable transition for the church to fall out of a, an easy situation of prominence and, and of influence, but it could actually save us our souls um, if what we get back is a sense of, The kind of community to which Christ calls us, the kind of witness to which we're called to give in the public sphere, and I don't mean to say that we should back away from public witness, but that we should be able to do so with a clearer sense of exactly what it is that the gospel tells us public witness should be, rather than simply, you know, dressing up the agenda of one political party in quasi-religious garb.
0: It it seems to me that um, it comes down to matters of life and death. I hear from a lot of general Zers, um, you know, our, our youth here at the church, uh, a lot of anxiety about matters of climate change and will the world really exist um, when they're my age or when they're their parents age. And there might be something to, you know, Christianity gaining back its sense of matters of life and death that truly in dying to ourselves and being raised in Christ, that. That means something very big in a way that being aligned with the powers that be doesn't fulfill.
1: I I, I agree. You know, I, I, I do hope that our social cohesion remains such that Christianity can still be an effective voice in a situation of, you know, relatively smooth transition and change because there will certainly have to be transition and change. But it's also possible that with the reality of climate change and with forms of pressure that get placed upon our social fabric that, you know, the witness of Christianity in 50 years may be, you know, to to try and help provide people with meaning in a world which is much more difficult to live in and and helps people to think about living together in a world that's fallen apart. Um, That's not something any of us should wish for. But as you say, um, some of the forces that we're facing uh, will – will require drastic action to avoid. And if we don't avoid them, then the role of the gospel will have to be something other than providing kind of religious meaning to whatever the standard sort of ideology yeah. of, of day-to-day life is. It will be rather a question of answering the crises of, of human existence.
0: And it, it something we know about climate change too, is that it divides along class lines, right? We're seeing this in the, The wealthiest of us are building rocket ships so that they can escape a planet that might die in the near future. And the poorest of us find ourselves in triangles of pollution and neighborhoods that have been written off as collateral damage to, you know, the ways that be in that part of the witness of Martin um, and for St. Martin's as, as this parish is, Leading into that legacy of sharing our cloak, sharing the abundance that we have here with those who will truly need it in the way that the world is changing and the all the ways we're seeing it change right now. Um, and that's something that i've I've enjoyed reading about in the history of this parish when we were founded. Um, in those early meetings, the the man who was called to be the first rector, um, Father Thompson, kind of cast the vision with with the steering committee of what St. Martin's was gonna be. And they founded it on three things. They founded it on, we wanna be a church that does exceptional outreach to those who need it in the legacy of Martin. We wanna be a church that does exceptional evangelism um, and really calls all people to come be a part of this. And we wanna be a generous church that works toward a tithe and, and generous giving. And it was so interesting reading that in those 1950s documents, um, because that's still very much baked into the DNA of this congregation in a, yeah, in a yeah. very profound way. You know, we, we have a disaster relief trailer. Anytime there's a hurricane, um, within striking distance, a group of people just kind of shows up at the church and knows that it's time to go and we go help folks. Um, it's, that's, it's a church that dives into the, the fray of, of helping people, um,
1: that's and powerful. it's you know yeah we we see
0: the symbols of it uh, cross stitched into our altar kneelers and our bishop's chair every Sunday.
1: Mm-hmm. There will, there there are always going to be people sitting outside the gates needing half of one's cloak. Um, you know that's something that 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 isn't going to change. I think whether it's whether it's because of um, poverty, because of climate change, because of natural disasters and so forth. And and I think that capacity to respond to Basic human need in practical ways is something that, um, you know, can also unite people a little bit across ideological lines, you know, and, and I think the capacity to actually take concrete action to support one another and to help those who are in need is is, is something which remains a, a clear part of the gospel call for all of us.
0: And as a particular kind of evangelistic witness unto itself. Dean McGowan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and in a certain way, being here with us today. Um,
1: it's a delight to so be We're so grateful
0: here. for your wisdom.
1: Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to um, celebrating St. Martin's Day um, next week, which, of course, also coincides with um, Veterans Day or Armistice Day, as it was known originally, which is another interesting tie-in for Martin, that his feast day was chosen as the day on which the armistice was signed at the end of the First World War. So another day to remember those who served, but to give thanks for peace.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, um, we're transferring the feast to Sunday since it's our big paternal feast, um, and we're doing a pig roast. Oh, <laughs> uh, pig roast in a potluck to to celebrate it here locally. Um, so, if you're one of our St. Martin's listeners, please come on the 14th and come hungry. If you are one of our listeners from far away, um, I hope that you will—I don't know—celebrate in some other appropriate way. But I was wondering if you could share with us briefly. Uh, why we might be roasting a pig here, besides it being South Carolina and that being the thing to do, what, where does the um, tradition of that come from? That's
1: that's a that's a great uh, question. In fact, because St Martin's Day you know falls uh, in the in the fall, um, it's it's often in many European cultures it's a day which is associated with the time when livestock was slaughtered for uh, for butchery and for um, to To make sausages and uh, to you know make other foods that would be stored across the winter so that they could be um you know be be, be brought out during various points and and pig slaughters would often take place around this time um, just because of the fact that it was this season but it's also interesting that there's there are proverbs in more than one um, more than one European language which have to do with uh, the, the Saint Martin's Day and the slaughter of the pig. So, in in Spanish, there's actually a a, a a version of this quote that appears in Cervantes' Don Quixote. But I understand the version that's more typical today in Spanish is "Acada cerdo se llega su San Martin." Every uh, every pig will get his Saint Martin's Day. Um, so this is a somewhat laconic uh, sort of note on, on on which to end that. That Martinmas or Saint Martin's Day is is a time when the wicked will get their comeuppance. That's really what the the significance of the proverb is. So um, the innocent pig whom you will feast upon um, next week is is sort of also a reminder of the fact that while sometimes we don't see the the, the justice uh, that is deserved in the world meted out, nevertheless. Uh, everything's in God's hands ultimately. And, um, the Martinmas could be a day of remembering peace, but also a day of remembering the need for justice, uh, which will be meted out in God's good time. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you. And, um, if the mail system allows us, perhaps we'll, we'll mail you a freeze dried portion. <laughs> thank, <of> you. Our
1: <laughs> thank you, Caitlin. I hope everyone enjoys it regardless.
0: Thank you for being here. Dean McGowan. Um, very grateful for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you all.
0: This is a podcast of St. Martin's in the Fields in Columbia, South Carolina. Pay us a visit here on campus, come worship with us on Sundays, or visit us online at smifsc.com. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast channels. And Leave a comment. Let us know if you like this episode, if you like this format. We want to hear from you. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.